Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 43-54. We're recording this in the studio. We had some technical difficulties yesterday during the worship service. We didn't want to lose this wonderful passage. It won't have the same inflection. You, you can't do a sermon again without the Holy Spirit's presence and the congregation as well. And so you'll notice quite a different inflection. But by God's grace, he will still use the content of the sermon to bless any who are listening to it. Again, this is from John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. And the title of the sermon is Believing in Jesus. Years ago when I used to teach, I used to ask my students what they thought the worst possible sin was, that one sin that would keep them out of heaven. Many answered, as you would expect, they said murder or rape or adultery. And those who came out of the Catholic background would often rattle off one of the seven mortal sins. My friends, do you know the one sin the Bible says God cannot forgive? The one sin that, if embraced until death, renders a man unsavable? It is unbelief. Unbelief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is the damnable sin. It is a sin for which all people are ultimately sentenced and condemned to an eternity in hell. Our Lord has already made this clear to us in the earlier part of the gospel back in John chapter 3 verse 18. He said, whoever believes in the Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Remember, the apostle wrote this entire gospel to overcome this deadliest of all sins. He said in John 20, verse 31, These things are written that we what? We might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word believe in the Greek, pisteo, it, it occurs a hundred times in the gospel accounts, with the majority of those references to a saving belief, a saving faith in Jesus Christ. It comes from a Greek word that means to be persuaded that something is true. And as we will see clearly in the passage today, any true saving faith that leads to eternal life is accomplished by God doing the persuading. A persuading of the sinful heart that overcomes the worst of all sins, unbelief, and leads to repentance, faith, and by his grace, eternal life. In our passage today, Jesus is dealing with two types of belief. Two types of lifelong persuasions. One that leads to eternal life and the other that leads to eternal death. And I would like to look again at John chapter 4 and by his grace see how faith in anyone other than the person of Jesus Christ is a lethal belief system. And how by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we can have eternal life. I want to do that by looking at three things. One, believing by sight. Two, believing by word. And three, believing in the person of Jesus Christ. Believing by sight, believing by word, and believing in the person. First, believing by sight. After our Lord had finished his glorious work in Samaria, bringing the Samaritan woman at the well to a saving faith, and then through her persuading many in her hometown to believe as well, we're told in John chapter 4, verse 42, they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Our Lord leaves this fertile ground of ministry where Gentiles are believing Jesus' words without any miracles and declaring him to be the Savior of the world. He leaves this place intentionally to head back to his hometown, back to Galilee, 
And what we find in verse 43 and following is this. After the two days he departed for Galilee, verse 44, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Verses 43 and 45 almost seem in contradiction to one another. He left Samaria and he departed for Galilee. Why? Because he himself testified that he would not be received with honor. The language in the Greek is it clearly conveys that Jesus is intentionally going to a place where he knows he will be dishonored, where he will not be treated as the Savior of the world, as the Samaritans had truthfully declared, but as a miracle worker who could do tricks, perform miracles, and make the lives of his fellow Galileans a little easier. And here, my beloved, is a form of belief that has no saving power. Look again at verse 45. The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. They had been there. They saw the many miracles Jesus exercised in Jerusalem, and now their homegrown miracle worker was coming to his own people. But this was the extent of their belief. They believed what they had seen and no more, and herein lies the great dishonor of which our Lord spoke, that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the incarnate God, the great I Am, the living water, the light of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, would be welcomed by his hometown, his own people, not as the Son of God and not as the Messiah. He would be welcomed as a miracle worker, someone to be used to meet their everyday needs, to multiply food, to make some water into wine, to provide relief from every conceivable sickness and pain. What a contrast to the pagan Samaritans who believed him without a single miracle, but on his testimony alone. We must remember what John said back in John chapter 2, after Jesus performed miracles in Jerusalem. In verse 23, he said, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew their faith in him, their belief in him was not a saving faith. They wanted his power, they wanted his signs, they wanted the miracles and they wanted the healings, but they did not want his lordship and they did not want him. This was not a saving belief. It was a belief only in what they had seen with their eyes and desired of Jesus in their flesh. Nicodemus, the great teacher of Israel, he went to Jesus with the same lethal belief. John chapter 3 verse 2, if you remember, he went to Jesus and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So prevalent had Jesus' miracles become. Everywhere he went, people followed him to be healed of their various ailments. Even our Lord's enemies did not deny his supernatural power. Instead, they ascribed his miracles to the works of the devil. We're told in Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Our Lord's signs and wonders were unquestionable. They were given to help people believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were not to be an end in and of themselves. But as with all of God's blessings, the sinful hearts of the Galileans were quick to pervert the blessings of our Lord. They wanted the signs, they wanted the wonders, but they did not want the wonderful one. They did not want the Messiah. They didn't want the gospel message that he had to share. A little bit later in his ministry, while he was healing many in Capernaum, we're told in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, that Jesus said to them as, as he was preparing to leave, he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. 
His ministry was not signs and wonders. It was not healing the sick. As glorious as these things were, it was the gospel. It was giving saving sinners. It was saving sinners through the cross. And every sign, each miracle, as Spurgeon rightly said, it was a parable. It was a mini-sermon that pointed mankind to the gospel of grace and the saving power of Jesus Christ. The seeking Christ as a miracle worker rather than a savior is illustrated for us in particular here in verses 46 through 48. Look at verse 46. So he came, Jesus came to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus, upon his return to Galilee, he goes to the city of Cana, where he had performed his first miracle of turning water into wine. While in Cana, a man from Capernaum, a lake town on the northern shore of Galilee, 16 miles from Cana, came to see Jesus. He was an official in the court of Herod Antipas, the wicked son of Herod the Great, who, if you remember, had John the Baptist beheaded. This man of royal authority, used to having his own way, found himself helpless and desperate. Having likely tried the resources of Herod and the healers of the royal court, his son was still dying and he could do nothing to stop it. And so when he heard that Jesus was in town, he went to him because he too believed that Jesus was a miracle worker. His son was sick to the point of death and getting help is all that mattered to this man. So this official in the royal court of Herod goes to Jesus with little thought or concern of who Jesus is or who he might be. He only wants his boy to be healed, and he wants Jesus, by the power of God or Satan, to make him well. Look at verse 47. He went to him and he asked him, better translated, he went to him and he begged him, he implored him multiple times. The word in the Greek is in the imperfect tense, meaning he asked Jesus again and again and again. This man was desperate and he was not ashamed to beg. He was a father and his son was sick. And he asked Jesus to come down to Capernaum with him. Because unlike the centurion centurion in Luke chapter 7, he did not believe that Jesus had the power to heal from afar. This man's request had nothing to do with salvation or eternal life or the Messiah. He was laser focused on his dying son and wanted Jesus to do something about it before it was too late. Jesus, on the other hand, had a laser focus on this man's heart and was concerned about his eternal life, much more so than his son's physical well-being. Our Lord's response is, is not what you might expect. Here's this desperate father pleading for Jesus to save his son. And rather than offering a word of comfort, a word that most people would think Jesus would say, he rebukes the man and all of Israel. Look at verse 48. Jesus said to him, unless you, literally you people, it's plural, you all, he's including the father and all the Jews, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Unless you see me do a trick, Unless you see me give sight to the blind, unless you see me heal the lame and make sick people well, you will not be persuaded that I am anything more than a carpenter from Nazareth. Nothing more than the oldest son of Mary and Joseph. Nothing more than your hometown hero with some special powers. This was a sweeping rebuke upon the chosen people of God. Remember, the Samaritans believed without miracles. The Jews demanded miracles and received them, but they still did not believe he was anything more than a miracle worker. This is the great dishonor of the Son of Man. 
Their Galilean welcome was superficial and shallow and purely self-seeking. They saw him as a genie, there to do their bidding, and not the creator of the universe. It was part of God's plan to use the miracles of Jesus and the apostles to substantiate the gospel and encourage the faith of the believers. But these signs were never intended to be the foundation upon which a person was to have a saving belief. Paul made this clear in Romans 10.17. He said, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. How many approach Jesus today like this man, wanting him to help in a time of crisis, believing in his powers but not in his lordship? This royal official, he had power to give orders in the kingdom of Herod, but in the kingdom of God, where the keys of life and death are determined by God, he found himself helpless. He needed a miracle, and so he went to Jesus, the miracle worker. But believing by sight, as you well know, was not sufficient to save this man. Jesus understood this, and that's why he drew this man deeper and deeper into a true saving faith. Point number two, believing by word. Look at verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. The man had no interest in engaging Jesus in some dialogue regarding miracles or unbelief or how the Jews would not believe unless they saw Jesus do a sign. He ignores our Lord's assessment of himself and his people being miracle-dependent and missing who Jesus really is. He's not concerned. He continues to relentlessly petition Jesus for his son's life. The father uses the word child here instead of son It is a more affectionate term used for little children. This royal official had humbled himself completely before this obscure, miracle-working Nazarene. He says, Sir, it's kurios, or Lord, Sir, come down before my child dies. And despite his stern rebuke and knowing this man's heart, Jesus has compassion on this desperate father and grants his request. But why? Why would he feed into this man's insufficient faith that has no power to save his soul? Why would he grant to this man something that may remove his sense of helplessness and dependence on God? The same reason that he graciously exercised any miracle so that step by step he might lead someone to a true saving faith. Look at verse 50. In verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. He has compassion on the father and the father's son. But this is not what the man requested. The father came to Jesus and said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Come down to Capernaum with me and lay your hands on my boy like I saw you do in Jerusalem. Come with me and use your powers in my child's presence to save him from death. Come. Jesus saying in verse 50, Go, your son will live, was a most unexpected response. The father obviously thought that Jesus had fit power to heal in the presence of someone. But our Lord would increase his faith by showing him that he could heal from afar. Jesus' words, go, your son will live, would not only satisfy this man's immediate desires, his son would live, but it also provided this man with a great opportunity for his belief in Jesus to become a saving belief. It was a great test. Jesus offers this man no sign, nothing for him to see or stake his claim on, only the Savior's words, And if our desperate father received them, if the man simply believed, then he would be drawn one step closer to a belief that had the power to not only save his son, but himself and his entire household. Without any tangible proof that his son was or would be healed, 
We're told in verse 50, look at this. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man believed. Without Jesus going, without a miracle to see, without confirmation of the boy's healing, which had already taken place, by the way, this man trusted Jesus' word. He believed without seeing. He believed by only hearing. This is a a monumental shift in this man's understanding of Jesus' power and ability to persuade one's faith. He, like the rest of the Jews, had demanded miracles from Jesus. But in a giant step of faith, this father, who begged repeatedly for Jesus to come with him and heal his child, is satisfied with five little words. Go, your son will live. The man said, come. Jesus said, go. The man said, before my son dies, Jesus says, your son will live. And what did he do? He went. He went, clinging to his heart, Jesus' words, my son will live, my son will live. Our father makes his way home. What had taken place? What had taken place in this man's life? His faith was growing. When my children were young, we used to go to a swimming pool near our house, and they had a diving board. The kids loved going off it. Initially, they would only go off the diving board if I positioned myself directly in front of it, enabling them to essentially jump into my arms. Gradually, as their confidence in my ability to catch them grew, um, and as they got a little bit better at swimming, I was able to move to the side of the pool. The final progression of their belief in, in my watching them and caring for them came when I was able to sit in a chair from a distance and read. They believed that if something were to happen, that I'd be able to catch them and get there in time. Before they would look, they would glance at me. What had taken place? They knew me better, and they trusted me more. Their faith in my ability to keep them safe, even from a distance, had grown. This man's faith in the power of Jesus had to increase as well, and that's what was happening. Jesus is lovingly and intentionally drawing this man to himself by revealing himself more. More than just a miracle worker. More than just a hometown hero, he's revealing himself as a compassionate creator who hates sickness and death as well. As a true savior who could save with his words, live, he could say that and heal a boy, a dying boy from 16 miles away. Like the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus was after this man's soul. He was after the eternity of his family. This man had no idea. He only wants his son to be well. But our Lord wants him, his son, and their entire family to be well for all eternity. And so Jesus uses this man's crisis to draw him in and bring him to a better understanding, a truer understanding of who he really is. And Jesus lovingly forces him to move beyond his superficial understanding of Jesus as this hometown miracle worker to Jesus the Messiah, to Jesus the Christ, to Jesus the Son of God. And knowing Christ as our Lord and Savior was to be the culmination of this man's journey. But he's not there yet. He believed Jesus by sight. That Christ was, in fact, a miracle worker. And he believed Jesus by word. He did now that Jesus was a truth teller. That he was more powerful than he thought. Probably more powerful than he ever imagined. Otherwise, he never would have left. He's he's begging Jesus to come with him. He He never would have left. But he did because he believed. But our dear royal official upon whom Jesus had set his affections needs to take one more step, one necessary step of faith. Point number three, verses 51 to 54, belief in the person of Jesus Christ. In speaking with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, Jesus said in verse 24, unless you believe, 
you will die in your sins. But believe what? That he's a miracle worker? That he's a truth teller? That he's a prophet? John chapter 8, verse 24. Let me read the entire passage. Jesus said to the Pharisees, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, that I am the great I am, that I am God, he said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, well, who are you? And Jesus said to him, what I have been saying to you from the beginning. The essence of a true saving faith goes beyond seeing Jesus as a miracle worker or as a truth teller or as merely a prophet, a priest. It is believing that he is in fact the Son of God who came to die on Roman cross for your sins and believing and trusting in him and his substitutionary work on the cross to save you, his going to the cross, his dying on your place. This is a belief in his power to save a man's soul. To reject Jesus as the great I am and relegate him to some lower status, only a prophet, only a heal, healer, only a moral teacher, as many false religions and cults do, to do that is to reject saving faith. It is a rejection of Jesus Christ and who he really is. He is the Messiah. He is the incarnate God. He is the Savior of the world. This man, this, this royal servant, had gone from believing by sight what Jesus had done to believing by word what Jesus had said. But this last step he had to take, this most necessary step of believing in him, in the person, Jesus Christ. And it was a movement that our Lord would exercise in this man's heart to bring him all the way in to a saving faith. Look at verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. One o'clock in the afternoon, the exact time Jesus had made the promise that the boy would live. So remarkable and sudden was his healing. The servants knew the exact time it occurred. They said without hesitation, The seventh hour. What a fool this man would have been had he traveled 16 miles from Capernaum to Cana while his son was on his deathbed, only to hear the words of a religious charlatan offer a false promise to a desperate father. What a fool he would have been had he returned to find his son growing sicker or worse yet, dead. This happens all the time today, my, my beloved, with fortune tellers and tarot card readers, with those in the Word of Faith movement and the Health and Wealth Gospel, desperate people being misled by liars, and they are liars, but not with Jesus, never with Jesus. His word is always true. He told the man go because his son would live, and the boy lived. He didn't live by chance, but by the power of God, by the supernatural grace of God intervening to save this boy's physical well-being from afar. It was exercised, this, this great miracle was exercised upon this boy, for a greater purpose than sparing the son's life and the father's grief. Jesus healed the boy to bring the man and his family into the kingdom of God. When the servants inform him of the time that of his son's recovery, something extraordinary happens in this man's faith process. The man truly believes. Look again at verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. The word here to know in the Greek, it conveys more than a head knowledge. It was knowing something to be true by personal experience. He knew our Lord had graciously granted his son life at that exact time. And we're told in verse 53, And he himself believed and all his household. 
In verse 49, the man said, Come down before my child dies to Jesus. He believed Jesus could make his son physically well because he believed Jesus to be a miracle worker. In verse 50, Jesus said, Go, your son will live. And we're told that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. The man believed Jesus was a truth teller, and the man believed that he had the power to heal his son from afar. So what type of belief is this that we find here in verse 53? He had already believed that Jesus was a miracle worker, and he already believed he was a prophet. So what is this belief that he and his entire household are now receiving? It is a saving belief. It is a saving faith. It is a belief that moves beyond miracles and beyond words to the very person of Jesus Christ, to the man of God. It is a true, sincere, permanent belief and trust that Jesus Christ is all that he said he is and all that the Bible declares him to be. My beloved, authentic faith cultivated by God in the heart of a man, belief that has the power to save a man's soul from hell, believes the miracles, hears the words, and then enters into a forever loving relationship with the Son of God. It believes and it embraces all that Jesus Christ as revealed in the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation declares him to be. It doesn't stop short, seeing him only as a miracle worker or, or a moral teacher or a good man. It doesn't isolate him to a single office of a prophet or a priest or a king. True saving faith believes that he occupies them all and so much more. It believes that he is, in fact, the creator of the universe, that he is the glorious second person of the holy triune God, that he is the Messiah who gave his life as a ransom for many, that he is the first to rise from the dead and offer salvation to all who repent and believe. By God's saving grace, the boy was physically healed, sparing his father and the entire family the grief associated with the loss of a child. But infinitely more grand, the boy, his father, and their entire household, the mother, the siblings, the servants, the slaves, they all came to a saving faith. They all believed in Jesus as the Christ. And as a result, their souls were saved for all eternity. This father didn't realize that his son's physical condition was the least of his worries. He didn't realize that he and his entire household were in danger of the flames of hell because of their sins and their lack of faith. But God graciously moved them past whatever preconceptions they had about this hometown miracle worker from Nazareth and enabled them all to see and know who Jesus really is and by the power of the Holy Spirit caused them to repent and believe in him. In the midst of this great drama, the boy's sickness, the father's travels, his pleading, our Lord's compassion and power, the family's response, in the midst of all of this, God is revealing himself as a gracious father who saves sinners who aren't even looking to be saved. He intervenes out of his love for the lost and out of his love for his son, calling us to Christ and giving us the saving faith to see, hear, and believe in Jesus as the son, to see his works, to hear his words, to believe his words, and to put our faith in the son. And some of you, I know, some of you believe that Jesus lived and did many miracles. And that's good because it's true, he did. But it's not sufficient to save you. Some of you believe that the Bible is true. In all that it says, you are orthodox through and through. That's also good because it is. The word of God is true in all that it affirms. Many of you could even answer the third question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. 
the Bible, everything the Bible teaches, everything that it affirms concerning history, science, doctrine, ethics, religious practice, and any other topic is true. But even that is not sufficient to save you. Your faith, if it is to be a true saving faith that has real everlasting power, power to truly deliver your soul from hell to heaven, must be grounded and stay in the person of Jesus Christ. You must believe in him with your whole life. Believing in Jesus is at the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the message that he came to share and to complete on the cross. Coming out of the darkness of sin that we are not only born into but freely exercise every day requires belief in him. John 12, 46, Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. Becoming a son or daughter of God requires belief in him. John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become what? That you may become sons of the light, daughters of the light. Enjoying eternal life with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever requires believing in Him. John 6.40 For this is the will of my Father, Jesus said, that everyone who looks on the Son and what? And believes in Him should have eternal life. Securing your future victory over death and your resurrection from the dead requires belief in Him. John 11.25 Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. Enjoying the daily presence and power of the Holy Spirit, abiding in you, requires believing in Christ. John seven thirty eight. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. One more. Living a life of holiness and power that enables God to be glorified through you requires belief in him. Jesus said in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. My beloved, knowing Jesus Christ, not just as a miracle worker or as a truth teller, but as God, as your Savior, as the one who gave his life on the cross to pay for your sins, as the one who gave his life to pay for the sins of this royal servant and his entire family, to pay for your sins and the sins of your family, knowing Jesus as the Savior of the world and coming into his love and into his watch care by putting your eternity into his hands, by trusting him with everything and loving him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, desiring him above all else and following him your entire life. This is the type of belief God is looking for. This is saving faith. This is the faith that that will go to Jesus, you will go to him, just like this father, and you will beg Jesus for all those in your life who are spiritually sick and dying. This is a faith that will compel you to the one who is accessible at all times, who is gracious to hear our prayers. This type of faith will, will bring you to the one who is eager to save, who came to seek and save the lost. We will go to him who has the power to say he will live, and in so doing, make people alive. My beloved, we see here the progression of faith, God drawing a man in, first by miracles, and then by words, and then by faith, all the way into his Son. If he's drawing you today, if you realize that you are that dying boy, sick on that bed of death, in need of a Savior, then I pray you don't resist. I pray that you would go to the Lord this day and you would beg him for mercy. 
that you would implore him to forgive you of all your sins and have mercy upon your soul. He's gracious to save. He will not turn you away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this incredible testimony of your son working through this royal servant in the king's palace. We praise you as well, Lord, for doing a great work by saving his son. But we thank you most for you being a merciful and gracious God. By revealing your son, Jesus Christ, as you save him, his son is an entire household. We ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with us, that you would draw us in as well. Bring us past seeing Jesus just as a miracle worker. Bring us past just seeing him as a prophet or truth teller, Lord. Bring us all the way in that we might know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as priest, prophet, and king, as the one who gave his life to die for sinners like us. Do that great work, Father. We cannot on our own. You must, by your Holy Spirit, do it. We ask you and we beg you that you be gracious with us in this matter. We praise you, Lord, for this passage and the preservation of it. I pray that you would bless all those who hear it. In Christ's name, amen.